Mediated Conversation on SAFM. Good morning. Time for your Mediated Conversation this Thursday morning. One of the biggest figures in our history is the figure of Shaka Zulu, the man who created and formed the Zulu nation, created a nation that was able to defeat the British Empire at the time. His presence, his impact, his history are felt even now. What he created has had a huge impact on our country from long before we, as South Africa, were a nation-state. It's also a long and complicated story, an amazingly inspirational story, a story which can inspire huge emotion and often debate. Right now, on Netflix, is the old SABC miniseries, Shark Zulu. It's been broadcast several times since it was first produced in 1985. I'm sure you've seen it. In the next few days, another channel is due to broadcast the first episodes of a new telling of the story. It's called Shaka Ilembe. But how do you tell the story of Shark Zulu? Have the previous tellings been accurate? And it may be important to remember that the original series was the first time that most people in the United States would have seen Zulu people on screen. It followed a film from 1964 called Zulu, which starred a then-major film star called Michael Caine and a prince called Mangasutu Butalezi. So then, how has one series formed the cultural memory of Shark Zulu? Will the new series be different? How important are these productions in our memory and our cultural memory of Shaka Zulu. First this morning, Professor Diane Wiley is the author of the book Myth of Iron, Shaka in History, also of the book A Pocket Biography of Shaka Zulu. He's a professor in the English Department at Rhodes University. Professor Juanipa Mokwena is an associate professor at the Witts Institute for Social and Economic Research. She is an advisor for the new series Shaka Ilembe. And then Professor Musa Kolo is a cultural expert and executive director of the Heritage Development Trust. We start then with Professor Dan Wiley. Professor Wiley, good morning to you and thank you for your time. Thank you. Shaka Zulu occupies such a big space in our popular culture and our history. Has the way in which we tell his story changed over time? Oh, indeed. In the early uh, early 1800s, from 1836 onwards, the image of Shaka that was purveyed to European audiences in art and literature was one of this degenerate mass killer, this monstrous... Attila the Hun-like figure who was allegedly responsible for killing off whole tribes, sending them scattering over the subcontinent, killing, according to one of the eyewitnesses, Henry Francis Finn, a million people, even though he had absolutely no evidence for such a thing. So that monstrous image um, persisted for a long time, and traces of it remain today. I think there are traces of it in the Bill Foray TV series of 1985-1986, but around the middle of the 20th century, particularly with the publication of um, E.A. Ritter's novel, Shaka Zulu, a turn happened where Shaka became more of a nation builder, more of a military genius, um, a man who made his way up from a very... insignificant childhood to uh, a world-famous leader. So those two images of the the monster and of the almost superhuman military genius have laid alongside each other for many years with a swing towards the latter in, in the last 75 years or so. Do we find that the uh, sensibility of the time in which the story is told matters and who's telling the story matters? So I imagine the, the 1964 film and the 1980s series, there seems to be, I haven't seen the film, but in the series, there's a lot of screen time for white people, even though the story is about Shah Zulu. 
Does that reflect Absolutely. on the people telling the story? No, of course. Um, the, the, the 1985 series is filtered largely through the presence of Henry Francis Finn, who was one of the few white eyewitnesses um, who was able to write about Shark in the last four years of his reign. So in the series, Finn is portrayed as um, a beacon of civilization in some senses, in, in some cases putting the brakes on Shaka's depredations and so on. So it very much affects the way we see Shaka. We, we don't really get um, as much of a, a Shaka-centered point of view as we might have done. And in fact, Finn was a pretty nasty piece of work. I mean, he was fighting as a mercenary. He was running guns, maybe slaves, smuggling out ivory. When he became a magistrate later, he was responsible for cold-blooded killings of certain chieftains, of rustling cattle. I mean, he was a dreadful person, you know. So to try to filter the, the story through him is really, really problematic. And I'm hoping a new series and films will, um, will overcome that. It's amazing to me that if, I think for many people, if you say the phrase Shark Zulu, the person, the image they think of is the actor from that series, Henry Trele. I mean, that mm -hmm. series has had a huge sort of cultural impact. And yet, from what you say, probably wasn't very accurate. Well, we just don't know. We don't know when Shark was born. We don't know exactly when or quite why he was killed, although we have some more details. And we don't know what he looked like. The, the white eyewitnesses didn't leave a detailed portrait, and the Zulu oral histories, such as we have them, are very contradictory. One informant says, no, he was dark-skinned and had the, the tight buttocks of a dancer. Another informant says, no, he was quite light-skinned and had the large buttocks suitable to a king. And there's no way of telling which might be the more accurate, you know. Um, so we really have no idea really what he looked like. And as you say, the image that most people have now is that of Henry Taylor, that, that whipcord, buffed, um, athletic physique. Um, and he may or may not have been like that, you know. These debates around Sharker's legacy, the arguments about that, the, the history. I mean, they're going to probably be important over the next few months. I think they come back and they come come up and down in our debates. Do you think this is always going to be the case? Or could other elements of our identity start to shift away from the history of Shark Zulu? To come at it from another direction, I think it could probably be argued the fact that his empire defeated the British is always going to be a very important fact in our history. Absolutely, yeah. Just recall that the defeat of the British at Isandlwana in 1879 was 50 years, half a century, after Shaka was killed. So although we can credit Shaka with laying the foundations for a Zulu state with a very powerful military presence, um, a lot had happened in half a century to consolidate that under Dingane and then Impande particularly. Um, and I think we tend to read back into Shaka's history the image of these massed armies that confronted the British in 1879. Um, and I think that's somewhat problematic, right? Um, so the idea of, of the Zulu as this um, hyper-militarized, hyper-efficient military state uh, can be exaggerated, I think, especially when it comes to Shaka. Shaka conducted relatively few, a, a tiny handful, actually, of pitched battles. 
I think he was much more of a negotiator. Um, he made allies amongst his neighbors who have retained their individual identities, like the Flubi, the Mkis, and so on, even under the umbrella of a, of a so-called Zulu state. Um, so the unity of the state and the militarization of the state, I think, can be exaggerated when you read back into Shaka's history. Professor Dan Wiley, thank you. Professor in the English Department at Rhodes, author of the book Myth of Iron, Sharka in History. You with SFM, your mediated conversation continues. The historiography, the telling of the story of Sharka Zulu. Professor Hlonipa Mokwena is an associate professor at the Witts Institute for Social and Economic Research and an advisor for the new series Sharka Ilembe. Professor Mokwena, good morning and thank you for your time. So much for your invitation and thank you to the listeners for, for, for listening. When you seek to portray Shaka Zulu, what elements are the most important? How do you decide which parts of a story must be told and which parts can be left out? Um, let me actually begin with a little bit of sort of academic jargon by just summarizing actually the, the scholarship um, that I think has influenced um, our telling of the Shaka story. There are three uh, uh, wide areas of research that are currently sort of influencing our thinking. The first one is on um, uh, the Drakensberg Mountains. For a very long time, there was an assumption that the Drakensberg Mountains had functioned as a kind of barrier between East and West. And many archeologists are now showing that that is not particularly true. And then the second area is what people are calling the Limpompo Shashi Basin. So many archeologists use that term to refer to basically these uh, mega sized homesteads that our, our ancestors built um, in and around the Limpompo, the Limpompo River. And then the third area is the relationship between Guni kingdoms and Delagoa Bay and the kingdoms in between. So sort of facing northwards rather than facing south. And so when we were thinking about how to retell the story of Shaga, we, we and it was my job as a, as, as a historically minded person to actually bring some of that research into the, into the discussion and sort of changing the way that we think about Shaga as a kind of single mover. And so what is really happening in the scholarship is that we're beginning to think of the rise of Shaga as a kind of 500 year process rather than just a sort of like fluke or a sort of case of genius or a case of a slighted young prince who sort of uh, uh, is out for revenge. So for people who are close to their computers or their phones, you can Google 500 year archive and see some of the work that, that my colleagues are doing um, in sort of rethinking the history of Southern Africa in general. Shaka is almost a mythical figure in our history. I mean, he's one of very few people you can refer to just by one name, you know, Shaka. Can it be difficult yes. to separate truth from fiction? I mean, from what we've heard, there are huge arguments around descriptions, what he looked like. That must be, for you as a, you know, advising storytellers, quite difficult. Um, this is one of the reasons why I love Dan Wiley's book. I mean, I think I underlined every sentence in, in The Myth of Iron, because at the time, I was a young scholar trying to write about a Zulu writer who wrote about, about Shaga. And I mean, as he said in, in, his, in his segment, almost everything that we know about Shaga is fictional, including his name, actually, because even the name Shaga is the name that was given to him by people who didn't like, who didn't like him because his mother had fallen pregnant while young. And Ili Shaga in Zulu is a kind of stomach 
ailment. Uh, so she, it was said that uh, this was the cover story that was given to the mother that she's not pregnant, but she's got Ilishaga. And so even his name is not something that he personally chose. Um, and as you will see in the series, his mother actually calls him a different name. She calls him Liloane. Um, and he, he seems to have had different names even. And so just even deciding how to, how to address the man um, is in itself part of, this, of the story, part of the myth. And then all the other stories from conception to death, as Dan Wiley has said, are largely influenced by the way that the traders, the British traders um, and the adventurers that he met told the story in retrospect. And so this is what, one of the reasons why uh, retelling the story becomes difficult, is that everyone is in some ways looking at Shaga from a rear view mirror perspective. There's a sort of strangeness in the telling that, um, I'm not entirely sure how to put this, but it seems to me that many uh, descendants of Shaka, many descendants of the nation that he created, will probably have first heard of him, if not through oral histories from their parents or grandparents, their reading of him will have come from accounts of, you know, given firstly by white people. There's a sort of awfulness to that. Yes, there is. But I mean, I must add that. So for my own thinking, for example, on how I was going to contribute to the series, I actually read a Sigmund Freud's book on Moses, Moses and monotheism. And the first line in the book is Freud saying, how do you write about the hero of your nation when you are part of that nation? And so I was intrigued by this idea that actually what is missing from the history of Shaga is a kind of psychoanalytic understanding of Shaga. Who was the man from the inside out? So the series that we've created is based on a kind of psychoanalytic reading of Shaga. And in, in essence, we are trying to imagine how Shaga would respond to exactly all the images and myths that have been created of him how he would sort of correct some things and accept some things. Is Shaka always going to be a, a huge figure in our popular culture, one of those towering figures? If you talk of Southern Africa, he's going to be among, maybe preeminently, maybe before anyone else, he's going to be one of the names that people thinks about. He's the kind of person that everyone's child is going to know the name of. Um, you know, popular culture is a um, is both a gift and a curse, if I can put it that way. In, in the sense that every generation has to find their own version of, of, of Shaga. And every generation has to create its own myths, exactly because I think over time he has meant different things to different people. So, for example, I'm often fascinated when I meet people from the Caribbean who have watched the 1980 series and the kinds of things that they imagine that Shaga did. And then as a South African, I have to say, that's not actually what he did uh, because the series, uh, exactly because it has spread so far and wide in the diaspora across the world. So many people of color, black people, people who are of African descent, see Shaga in a completely different way from the way that we see it um, from the Southern African perspective. So one of the things that actually for the people who know the literature, people who are steeped in the traditions, what people will notice is that in the series, we've actually created new myths. And this is what we've tried to do as well, is to move the conversation forward by creating totally different ideas about Shaga. So what you will see in the series actually is not Shaga, but you will see the Nguni nobility. You will see them in their private spaces, you will see them 
in their Amalau, so in their apartments. So this is one of the things that uh, people will find out about the Nguni people, was that actually people were very private. Every single person had their own apartment once you reached a certain age. So you had to visit someone in, your, in their apartment, including your spouse, you know, the person you're married to, the person you have sexual relations, relations with, your mother, your father, they all lived in separate apartments to you. You, did, you didn't live in a single house. And so we've created these private spaces in which this Nguni nobility is fighting out the events as they happen. So that's the one aspect that most people are probably gonna be surprised by. And the second aspect, which refers to popular culture, is actually fashion. Um, one of the things that is gonna astound people about the series is how fashionable everybody looks. We tried again, not to resort to popular stereotypes that this is the way that Zulus dress, this is the way that Ndwandwes dress, this is the way that the Mtetwas dress or whatever. We've tried to explode all those myths by actually creating fashion. So everyone is beautifully dressed. We've spent a lot of time creating different identities using uh, costumes and fashion. And so it's about it's also about fashion. And then the third uh, professor, I'm so we, sorry. I'm I am yes. going to have to interrupt. We are going to have to end it there for the moment. Professor Klonipa oh, Makwena, okay. I do apologize. Associate Professor at the Wits Institute okay. for Social and Economics Research and an advisor for the new series Shaka Ilemba. In a moment, Professor Musakul. Mediated conversation on SAFM. Continuing your mediated conversation around the historiography of Shaka Zulu. Professor Musakul is a cultural expert, executive director of the Heritage Development Trust. Professor, good morning. I can think of so many reasons why the story of Shaka Zulu is so powerful. Why do you believe he's different to almost everyone else in our history? Right, Professor Musatkulu, unfortunately battling there uh, to hear him at this stage. Not entirely sure why, uh, but uh, we will get him for you uh, on the radio so that we can hear uh, his version of these stories and just to continue uh, what uh, he, what the conversation has been saying. All right, he's there now. Professor Kulu, good morning. Sorry about that. Why do you believe Shaka Zulu is so different to everyone else in our history? I can hear you. Can you hear me, Stephen? Yes, we can. Oh, good. Thank you very much for, for the opportunity. No, after listening to Professor Mukwena, uh, my colleague, I, I, I felt very worried that, again, this the true story of Shagazulu is not being told. Shagazulu is born and brought up at a town in Melmoth. He's born out of marriage and therefore grew up under very difficult circumstances. He goes to the Mtetwas where he is nurtured uh, by uh, King Tingiswayo. On the story, on the on the the issues of how to form a kingdom. So he grew up with ambitions to unite the people in what is called KZN now, who were calling themselves by their surnames. The Tulus had their own kingdom. The Zulus, the, the Zulus had their own small kingdom. The Bielas, their own small kingdom. So he wanted to unite all of those people into one mighty kingdom. What happened in the process is that. <coughs> When he grew up, he found that he cannot do that through negotiation. Usually, with the smaller tribes, he attacked them. The bigger tribes, he negotiated with them uh, to come in into this new, very big part of the Zulu kingdom. And he asked people, instead of uh, uh, dwelling upon their surnames, the Tulus, to be part of this big kingdom. He did not have any interest in 
forming a, a Nguni kingdom. It was about the Zulu kingdom, which was his surname. And then, of course, later on in his life, he met with uh, uh, white people. A lot has been said about them. Henry Francis Finn, who started writing and uh, whatever he said and so on. But one of the reasons he got killed was one in May 1828, he sent a delegation to meet with the King of England, with a view to getting teachers who could, could come from England to teach Zulus how to read and write, and secondly, the gun technology. He amassed from almost all these Zulus and everybody. Um, his Amaboto regiments, including from the Khoisan, there was a special regiment which was called his Yendane, which came from the Khoi um, on the Dragasbeck Mountain. They, they they came themselves on their own to say, we want to be part of this new unity. Those who did not like this approach, the Mtembus of the Mandelas, the Mzizis of uh, Tawampegi, they left the kingdom and went to the Eastern Cape. Others went as far as Mozambique, Tanzania, okay. Malawi, so, uh, Zimbabwe, Zambia, where you, you still find these little footprints even in those uh, sure. countries. So, Professor, I'm sorry to interrupt you. We don't have as much time as we yeah. would have liked. And the story yes, is important, sure. and there's still arguments around the facts. Um, how difficult is it to tell the story of Shaka Zulu accurately? I wouldn't be surprised if one of the guests we've spoken to disputes your version, for example. I'm not saying they do, but I wouldn't be surprised if it happens. So how difficult is it to know for sure? No, it's, it's very difficult because, as you say, um, um, maybe in terms of the, the written text, the most reliable now is the James Archive, uh, James Stewart's archive, because James Stewart, what he did, he wrote exactly what those who had seen Chaga or who had heard from their parents about him were telling him. And therefore, that is the most accurate record at the moment. But there's also Zulu oral history. A lot of it, which um, <clears throat> he was born in Vanderfield, I, I, I grew up there. Everybody was talking about Shaga and how he grew up and so on, having, having heard from generations after generations in the locality at Melmoth. So there is, um, uh, it depends on how you look at oral history and indigenous knowledge systems. If you, you feel that sometimes there'll be accuracies, inaccuracies, there'll be exaggerations, Yes, of course, but there is a perspective of Shaga Zulu as per the Zulu people and the Zulu nation, which has come down even to this generation. That's why Zulus generally look at themselves even today as Amaboto warriors uh, in everything that they do. Uh, very quickly, Professor, I mean, he's the founder of a nation. Very few, na very few nations were sort of founded by one person as clearly as we understand the Zulu nation to have been. Is he always going to be important to our identity as South Africans? Very important. In fact, uh, globally, he's uh, the most most uh, recognizable name after Nelson Mandela. So it's not just a Zulu thing. It's a national thing. It's also a Sadak thing in the whole sub-Saharan, uh, sub-region um, of uh, Africa, where every in, in almost every, you go to Zimbabwe, they talk about him. You go to Malawi. They talk about him. You go to Mozambique, they talk about him among the Khoi and the Sun, among many people. But there will be versions. I think it's true, as was said earlier, that right, the, right, the, the first writers turned against him because one of the reasons Shaga was killed.
was because he he suddenly became so focused on sitting down with the white people, telling his story and his wishes. And I must say the other thing is that during his time, the Zulu economy was possibly at the best. I mean, Lobola, for example, it was very easy for a man to pay 80 cows for Lobola because everyone was living in abundance under Shaga. But uh, trying to tell one story, I think it's going to be very difficult. Indeed. Depends on the perspective from which you look. Professor, I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Professor Musa Kulu is a cultural expert, executive director of the Heritage Development Trust. Professor Hlonipa Mokwena is an associate professor at the Wits Institute for Social and Economic Research. She was an advisor for the news series. And Professor Diane Wiley, author of the book Myth of Iron, Shaka in History, is a professor in the English department at Rhodes University. We will be back tomorrow. Youth Day takeover tomorrow. So it won't just be me. It'll be someone... Irritatingly younger than me, uh, with me as well tomorrow morning. From Mdu Stanzasir, Banyana, myself, look after yourself. You were there, CFM, leading the conversation. Nine o'clock. Kathy, good morning. Good morning, Stephen.